Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Born in northern Italy, Amadeo Montigliani moved to Paris in 1906 at the age of 21 to immerse himself in the art of the day. His hero, Paul Cézanne, died the same year, and a retrospective in 1907 impressed the young artist. In his pocket, he kept a picture of Cézanne's boy in a red waistcoat. Like Pablo Picasso, to whom he often compared himself, Modigliani was drawn to non-Western art, including Khmer and Egyptian works. As part of the series Celebrating the East Building, 20th Century Art, this presentation by senior lecturer David Gariff on July 12, 2018 at the National Gallery of Art discusses portraits of Modigliani's fellow painter, Haim Soutine, Leon Baxt, designer for Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, and René Kiesling, wife of the painter Moisa Kiesling. Most of the paintings referenced were acquired by Chester Dale, a founding benefactor of the National Gallery of Art, whose 1963 bequest transformed the museum's modern art collection. His wife Maud mounted exhibitions of Modigliani's work and published one of the first scholarly monographs on the artist in 1929. Welcome uh, to the National Gallery. Uh, my name is David Gariff. <clears throat> I'm a senior lecturer here. And on Tuesday, I started a series that will, is going to be a 14-part lecture series that deals with um, <clears throat> the modern art collections in the East Building. But it, it entails more than that. First of all, as I mentioned to you uh, last time, but for those of you who weren't here, this year is the 40th anniversary of the opening of the East Building. Uh, it opened in 1978. So there are a number of uh, programs that we've scheduled around that sort of commemoration. This summer we'll have a series of Sunday summer lectures on the aspects of the East Building. I'm going to mention some of the history of the East Building as we go along. Uh, I'm going to mention a little bit about some of the great benefactors to the gallery who sort of were kind enough to give us the art that we often see in the uh, East Building. And um, in that regard, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to try to stay pretty close to talking about the objects that are in the gallery that you, you can see for yourself as opposed to just the broad our historical survey that shows a lot of works that one, one cannot see. But nonetheless, this will be a kind of, if you were to come to most of the lectures, it will be a kind of survey of 20th century art, at least as it's exhibited here at the National Gallery. I'm going to take us through the East Building the way it is now intended to be seen. Uh, in the past, we used to have special exhibitions on the upper floors and the permanent collection was on the lower in the concourse. Now it's just flipped. And so now what we do hope you'll do is enter on the ground level if you're just here for the permanent collection, enter on the ground level, and then progressively move up all the way to the, to the towers, which are two new areas along with the sculpture terrace. So that's the way I'm working through um, uh, the lectures. I'll cover almost all the rooms, with maybe a few exceptions <clears throat> towards, uh, towards the end. Uh, so let's uh, get started. Today I'm going to talk about the work of just one artist, because he is very well represented in the uh, National Gallery's collection. In fact, it's one of the finest collections 
of this artist's work anywhere in the world, and that's the uh, painter Amadeo Modigliani. So as I did last time, here is the East Building. When we opened after a three-year hiatus for renovation, so we were closed for three years, as most of you know, and then we reopened on September 30th, 2016, and this was the banner that sort of announced the new um, renovated East Building. So there are many changes. If you're here for the first time, you don't realize that, but many of you I know have been coming here for years, and so it was quite a, quite a change. This is the floor plan of the ground level, and the first three lectures that I'm giving, the one I gave Tuesday, the one today, and then the one I'll give on um, next Tuesday, stress the ground level and two spaces, this space and this space. So when you enter the East Building, you come up the stairs. This is where the Henry Moore is. You come up the stairs, and to your immediate left is a gallery that, as I mentioned last time, used to be called Small French Paintings. It was a gallery devoted to small works by French artists that had been collected by Paul and Ilsa Mellon, for the most part. But then we, uh, we have th those, those paintings occupied these four rooms, but not this room now, because now what has happened is we've totally reconfigured this gallery. So it's no longer called Small French Paintings. <clears throat> now it's called what you see here, Extending Tradition French Painting from 1890 to 1940. And it's meant to be a kind of a bridge gallery from the collection in the, where the collection in the West Building stops and where the collection in the East Building begins. So now we still have a number of the paintings that were in the original small French painting uh, space, uh, mainly those of the Nabi, the Vuillard uh, and Bonnard, uh, and then you can see those kind of peeking out here. Um, but one of the changes has been this space here, which is what we're going to talk about today and stay only in this space. That little gallery space is today totally devoted to the work of Modigliani, so pretty much all of our Modigliani paintings are now on view, as well as one sculpture. Although, again, things move around and we send things out on loan. So this is now totally devoted to, to Modigliani, and that's where we're gonna talk about today. Next Tuesday, we'll move to this gallery on the ground level. That's kind of hard to find sometimes. People kind of, it's kind of squirreled back. Um, and that'll be American art, the, the um, circles around Robert Henry and, and um, Alfred Stiglitz, but that's next Tuesday. So we're gonna finish up with this space today with Modigliani. Now, as I said, I am in the course of these lectures going to talk about where we got some of these paintings and et cetera. And when it comes to the collection at the National Gallery of Paintings by uh, Modigliani, the two people who are front and center are the, are the Dales. Um, Chester Dale, here on the left, in a portrait by George Bellows that, uh, from 1922. And then his wife Maud on the right, which is also a portrait by George Bellows from 1919. Uh, the Dales, as I think I mentioned last time, were the collectors who, whose gift to the gallery was the gift that really shifted the gallery's attention towards modern art. So when they gave uh, this large gift to the gallery uh, back in the 50s, it was mainly 19th and 20th century paintings. Prior to that, gifts had been mainly old masters, like from Andrew Mellon, et cetera. So with the uh, Chester Dale collection, as it's called, 
should be called the Chester and Mauddale collection, but actually, <laughs> actually, Maud didn't want that. She didn't want her name in that, uh, in that um, uh, reference, so we respect her wishes. In any case, um, the Dales, Chester and Maud, in the 1920s, were the instrumental collectors of, uh, who ended up giving us the, this great cache of Modigliani. They were among the first collectors to show an interest in Modigliani, and they bought a lot of Modigliani, and they often bought them in lots, I guess you would say. Um, at the time, in the early 20s, Modigliani's art, he had just died in 1920. His art was incredibly cheap. His reputation hadn't really begun to sort of uh, develop. And at that time, in the 20s, Chester Dale was the largest single collector of Modigliani's uh, anywhere in the world. Maud Dale, who was trained as an art historian and an artist, uh, she wrote a monograph on Modigliani uh, based on their collection. So when it comes to the Dales collecting, and those of you who saw the, the Dale exhibition we did several years ago, um, without sounding disrespectful, <laughs> Chester was the money and Maud was the brains. Um, because really, Maud had a very extensive training in the history of art. She knew art history, she knew artists, she knew trends, she knew she had a great eye. And often she was, she was uh, encouraging uh, Chester to buy certain things. And that was certainly the case with Modigliani. Uh, she was the instigator to get him to look at Modigliani and to collect Modigliani. So eventually they had 21 works by the artist. And as I said, it was considered, and still is considered today, one of the finest collections of Modigliani anywhere. Now, they lived, well, they had various residences, but the, where most of their paintings hung were uh, in their residence on East 79th Street. This is the Modigliani room. So this is a photo album of Chester Dale's residence. He lived at 20 East 79th Street. This is probably taken around 1941. These are all the Modigliani's today at the National Gallery. There's the butt, the head here. I can't even imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what I would do. I would. Uh, uh, here's the other wall. Uh, so yeah, it's just. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You want to see my Modigliani's? Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so all of these paintings are now here. Um, so this is as you enter that space now, extending tradition. And the long space is devoted entirely to the Chester Dale collection of Modigliani's. Uh, we have another beautiful wall panel uh, here that gives you a little background about Modigliani. So here's just an installation photograph, a young woman sitting looking towards one of the great, the first acquisition by Chester Dale, which is the uh, gypsy woman with baby. This, the very first acquisitions were this painting and the, the sculpted head. And there's a great story about that, which I'll, I'll tell you when we get there. So this is looking sort of the length of the gallery. Here are the long walls. This is the portrait of Soutine. We mentioned him last time. Uh, here, the two great nudes. And of course, there's an incredible market still today for Modigliani nudes, painted about 22 nudes. 
and a few of them recently came up for auction. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. So looking from left to right in the slide on the left is the woman with red hair, the nude on a blue cushion, and then Madame Amadie, woman with cigarette over here, and then the cafe singer, another nude. This is the nude on a divan, and then the portrait of Soutine. Modigliani and Soutine were incredibly close. Really, essentially, Modigliani took care of Soutine as if he were his younger brother. They were 10 years apart in age, Modigliani older. Here's just another view where you see the sculpture, some of the other works uh, here. And again, you can see a little bit more of the back wall here. So here are the Dales. Uh, there are quite a couple. Um, so this is a painting from the uh, Met on the left. Uh, it's by Guy Panet de Bois, who was famous for painting all of these uh, sort of literati and glitterati of the 20s. And the title of the painting is Mr. and Mrs. Chester Dale Dine Out. <laughs> so there's Chester and there's Maud uh, here. It's from 1924. And that's a photograph of Maud. Uh, from 1926. So Dubois' portrayals of all these New York sort of high society people between the wars, was, he was particularly prolific in this regard. Um, this was actually commissioned by the Dales. Uh, they wanted a painting by him that showed them uh, together. And it shows him with Maud uh, in a fashionable hotel. It's actually the Hotel Brevoort in New York City. Uh, they look, he looks kind of stiff. Uh, so here you can kind of almost sense um, Dale's tastes, Chester's tastes, were somewhat traditional. He, he particularly liked Monet, Mary Cassatt were the two artists that he was particularly interested in. Going towards the early 20th century, I think it's Maud who's the um, sort of um, inspiration to expand the collection, and nowhere more so than with the work of Modigliani. So here is the artist on the left from 1918. Uh, and on the right, a uh, very famous photograph, although you very often see this photograph of Modigliani cropped. You just see this part of it, and you don't see what's the whole photograph. I hate that. Um, but this is his, uh, his muse, his mistress, uh, his common law wife, who's portrayed dozens of times, and that's Jean. Uh, Haberturn, uh, so she will be with him right up until the end of his life. In fact, once he dies, she commits suicide. Um, so this photograph is probably from 1915-16. Uh, one of the great things about Modigliani, although I don't know, I guess it's debatable looking at this, was that he was considered to be very a very fashionable dresser. Um, <laughs> like to wear these ties and things. This is his famous suit, which was a chocolate brown corduroy suit that he wore a lot. In fact, even Picasso said, the only guy around here who knows how to dress is Modigliani. Uh, so uh, he's born in 1884. He's born in the city of Livorno in Italy. Um, he essentially comes from a, a poor family, um, and that uh, sort of sets the stage for a number of his um, uh, obstacles that he has to overcome in his life. Uh, he moves, though, in 1906 to, to Paris and he moves to Montmartre. And what you saw at this time was a, uh, a shift 
um, going on between Montmartre and Montparnasse. The artists were starting to sort of move from one to the other. And he goes first to Montmartre, but ultimately he'll go to Montparnasse, as did Picasso. A lot of these artists changed their residences because it, it was cheaper now to be in Montparnasse. And he's certainly influenced by Picasso. He sees Picasso's work quite, um, quite soon, especially the blue period. Of course, everybody, 1906, if you were here last two weeks ago, who dies in 1906? Cezanne. Cezanne. <laughs> so everybody's got Cezanne on their mind. And in 1907 will be the great retrospective at the Salon d'Automne. Uh, and then within a few years, 1909, he meets the artist that will become very important to him, and that's the Romanian sculptor Brancusi, Constantine Brancusi. Um, and initially, Modigliani is almost entirely concerned with sculpture. Uh, the, the reason he probably abandoned sculpture later, around 1914, is because he has tuberculosis and the dust from the marble and from the limestone is something that is causing him problems in terms of his, of his breathing. Uh, but he's very close to Brancusi. Brancusi is the artist who essentially opens up Modigliani's vision to non-Western sources, African art, oceanic art, things that all of these artists, at least many of them, Duran, Matisse, Brancusi, were beginning to look at. Um, and many of Modigliani's stone heads, of which we have one, uh, really are direct sort of references to different kinds of African, especially masks, which I'll, I'll show you here in a, in a second. Now, we need to mention a term that's used all the time to describe these artists, and it's kind of a very loose, amorphous term. It's called the School of Paris. So when you use the term at this point in time, prior to and just after, the First World War into the 20th. School of Paris will refer to artists like Brancusi, Chagall, Lipschitz, Soutine, all of these artists who were not French and came to France from other countries, not speaking for the most part the language, and becoming known as, the, and not for the most part affiliated with any movement. Brancusi is not really affiliated with the movement, Modigliani is not, Lipschitz is not, we think of him as sort of a Cubist, but he's sort of independent, Soutine. So they all are sort of expatriates, they're uh, emigres, um, they're not French, they don't speak French, and they have to learn French, and then they have to sort of find their way around with the help of others. And this is when you start to see this move from Montmartre to Montparnasse with the so-called School of Paris. Now there's another School of Paris, <laughs> and this one is simply the post-World War II School of Paris. So this would be artists like Dubuffet and Fautrier and Soulage and all these French artists who stay, uh, who are in Paris after the war, and then even a number of Americans who go there and stay, and they're on the GI Bill, and they end up staying in Paris uh, after the Second World War. So those are two different, but the term, again, relates for the most part to foreign art, art artists who come in and live in, in Paris. They're unaffiliated, and they all they share a certain interest. And the most important interest is they're interested in non-Western art, African art, especially. Now, Modigliani's Italian, so he has his obviously predilections and his history. And uh, Modigliani's mother, to whom he was devoted, um, <clears throat> she at an early age when she sees that he's has a, a certain talent, especially for drawing. 
she encourages that. She takes him to the Uffizi. They spend time in Florence. They, they travel throughout Italy. And so he's inculcated early on as a young, young boy, really, with the rich legacy of Italian art, the Renaissance mannerism, especially those two movements. So here is his girl with braids. This is not here at the National Gallery. This is in Japan at the Nagoya City Museum in Japan. Japanese love Modigliani. Um, and they, they put their money where their mouth is uh, in terms of purchasing Modigliani. So this is in a Japanese collection on the left. And then I'm showing you a, a detail from Botticelli's Primavera, springtime at the Uffizi from 1482. These sort of oval shapes, the sort of rouged cheeks, the sort of braided hair, the elegance. Botticelli obviously is an artist that Modigliani warms up to almost immediately because especially in Modigliani's drawing style, his drawing style is beautifully elegant and kind of calligraphic. And so a lot of that line is coming from his appreciation of, of Botticelli. But that would relate as well to the Mannerists. So here on the left is Parmigianino's Madonna with a Long Neck, also in the Uffizi. So he would have seen Parmigianino and Botticelli in the same museum. And that's a detail of the head of the Madonna in the center. And then this is a portrait of Jean, uh, Jean Habertern, in a large hat, his uh, partner um, from 1918. And these elongated faces, sort of ovoid, they have many, many sources. Certainly they refer to African art, African mass, they refer to mannerism, Italian art, to Botticelli. He synthesizes a lot of this, the way the hand comes up to the, to the chin, or to the neck, the elongated neck, all this is part of mannerism, and certainly it's something that Botticelli, I mean, Modigliani was aware of. So you can use this painting against Parmigianino. You could even see references to Botticelli, but probably more uh, um, commonly and accurately is to African art. So here is the same portrait from 1918, and these are uh, Fang, F-A-N-G, masks from Gabon here. And uh, this kind of shape, this curve of the nose, uh, the eyes, Modigliani goes between this eyes and these sort of little dot eyes. Um, all of this, these works are now being uh, adv avidly, uh, avidly collected by, by painters. The artist who had probably the, well, there were two who had big collections already. That would be Picasso and Andre Durand. Durand introduces Matisse to African art. Um, the thing with, of course, Picasso is this, um, throughout his life, I mean, Picasso, as I think I've told you in the past, you, you really can't believe a word he says, uh, <laughs> because he always changes his story. And when he completed the uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is 1907, which has two faces that are clearly related to African art on the women, you know, he would repeatedly say that I... I didn't start seeing African art until the 20s or this or that. And then we have these photographs of him in his studio in 1908, and in the walls filled with African, uh, with African masks. So, but he hated to say that he owed anything to anybody or any other sort of uh, tradition. Modigliani, of course, was, he loved this art. He, he wasn't embarrassed or ashamed to be connected to it. This is another painting that's not in the National Gallery. On the left, this is Marie, daughter of the people. This is one of the very few paintings by Modigliani of a child. Uh, it's in the Kunstmuseum in Basel. 
from 1918. And this is another Fang mask here. Uh, here. So Modigliani's main interest as a painter is in the human figure um, and in the form of both portraits and, of course, uh, the nude. Uh, here, Marie, as I said, is a rare child portrait. Um, he did a number of paintings of uh, children, a few, well, actually a, a small number of paintings in, when he was in southern France in 1918. Um, he is a figural artist, whether he's a sculptor or whether he's a, a painter, but he's certainly an artist like Brancusi, who is interested in pushing art towards a more abstract kind of, of language. And he does make a very nice uh, <coughs> counterpart uh, to, to Brancusi. Here again, um, this is uh, a head that's not our head but uh, a different one that recently came up for auction, actually, and a Fang mask here. And then comparing, again, a portrait of Jean uh, to the masks here. So as I said, it's certainly Bran it's Brancusi who introduces uh, Modigliani to African sculpture, African masks. He likes the simple forms, the bold lines, the open design, this, the abstraction. Um, this tendency to elongate faces uh, it comes in part from that. It also fit in at this time with more traditional Western ideas of especially symbolist art, where artists very often elongated faces to create these sort of dreamy-like kinds of uh, characterizations. Uh, Modigliani exhibited his sculpture first at the Salon, the Autumn Salon in 1912. And in fact, he, he did exhibit this sculpture here, um, which is now in a private collection. Um, and it's only at around 1914 that he switches from sculpture to painting. Had he not had health issues, I think actually Modigliani would have continued to be a sculptor, and the paintings would have been a secondary thing. But because of his, um, his weak health, um, he eventually switches over. Uh, I did have the figure here. This, this sculpture sold at Christie's in 2010 for $52 million, which is a real bargain uh, for Modigliani, because you'll see where we end up in terms of the market. Um, so the, the masks that he was most interested in were these Fang masks, uh, and that we know pretty, pretty clearly. Uh, this is an ethnic, this is one of, the Fang are one of about 20 ethnic groups that live in the rainforest of Cameroon, Congo, Equatorial Guinea, that area. So now we get into our collection. And we start with the first works that, that Chester Dale purchased. He purchased these together. Uh, so Gypsy Woman with a Baby on the left from 1919, and uh, Head of a Woman on the right from 1910 to 11. That's limestone on the, um, on the right. Uh, those of you who may have heard me talk about the Chester Dale collection, there's a great story here. Dale kept a pretty accurate kind of journal that we have in our archives. And uh, when he purchased this work, he purchased it from a gallery in Paris. And he walked into the gallery. And he had already, of course, been kind of jazzed up <laughs> by Maud about starting to collect Modigliani. So when he walked in and he saw this painting, he asked the, the um, owner, the gallery owner, how much did he want for it? And the gallery owner said it wasn't for sale. And then <laughs> Dale said, uh, 
how much do you want for it? Uh, and the, then the owner said, I, I just told you it's not for sale. Uh, and then, according to Dale, he took out his checkbook uh, and he opened up the checkbook. Now, this is a guy who was a wealthy banker and know, you know, he knew how to, what's the term we use? Deal. <laughs> uh, uh, so he opened up the checkbook, took out his pen, and then he said to the guy, how much do you want for it a third time? So then the guy is getting irritated, the, the gallery owner. So he, he names an incredible price, well beyond what the painting is worth, just to get this guy to leave. And Dale says, Dale turns and sees this head. And then he says, throw in the head and you got a deal. Um, and that's what happened. He bought both of these at the same time for an exorbitant price, well beyond what the market at that point was paying for Modigliani. And these are the first works to come into our collection of Chester Dale. So at, at this period, Modigliani more or less is, is relatively unknown. Um, this subject is interesting, the gypsy uh, woman with the baby, because it's his first, it's Modigliani's first attempt at a mother and child subject, which is not something he does often. Um, uh, it's painted right after and probably one of the reasons he took on this theme at this point in 1919 is because it's right after he becomes a father. Jean gives birth to their, their, their daughter, who's also, to make things confusing, named Jean. Um, and so he had just become a father, and I think that theme of the mother-child uh, was sort of in his, in, his, um, in his mind. Although, again, she's a, she's a wonderful figure. She looks a little bit maybe lost, a little bit insecure, but she tightly holds on to that child, uh, that sort of bundle. This is a great motif. Just a little bit of hair braided comes down <laughs> off, of her, off of her head. Uh, and this was really Maud who persuaded Dale to buy this painting. She just said, you, we got to have that. And so, of course, uh, he did. The, the head, um, all of these heads are directly indebted, initially at least, to Brancusi. So before we know the Brancusi that we see here at our gallery, which is this very sleek, like bird in space and things like that, Brancusi was carving heads that had the same kind of elliptical, um, beautiful, graceful shape. And certainly Modigliani was, was aware of that. He tended not to work in marble because marble was more expensive. So most of these heads are not marble. They're limestone, they're granite, they're, they're less expensive um, materials. Uh, the elongation, the elegance, all of that is coming both from Brancusi and already African art, which is what Brancusi is encouraging Modigliani to, to look at, these long necks, all of that. This is, these are two other works in our collection. This is Adrian on the left, or sometimes called Woman with Bangs from 1917, and Madame Kisling on the right from 1917. Uh, one of the most interesting portraits is the one on the right, uh, Madame Kisling. She, she was married to the artist Moise Kisling. Uh, he was a Polish-born French painter. Um, they were Jewish, and Modigliani was Jewish, Soutine was Jewish. Uh, Lipschitz was Jewish. There was a big Jewish, a lot of the School of Paris was populated with uh, Jewish artists who had come from various and sundry places, Russia, Lithuania, 
et cetera. Modigliani was very proud of his, his um, Jewish ancestry and Jewish religion. In fact, he didn't tolerate anti-Semitism. And very often, when somebody would be introduced to um, Modigliani, the first thing he would say is, hi, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and he would just like get that right out there, uh, right in front. So um, Renee Kisling is interesting. Um, she was also a painter uh, with her husband, um, part of the School of Paris, Montparnasse. Uh, and we have a great photograph here. This is her husband, and this is Renee here with the bangs, even the turn of the head. Uh, so this is Moisa and uh, Renee Kisling. They were quite devoted to each other. They got married in 1917. Um, and so she was very much a part of the School of Paris school of entourage around, around Modigliani. So you can see how he works when you look at nature, and then you look at the painting, and you can see the, the exaggerations, the abstractions, the distortions, and yet it does capture her very nicely. Here's the woman with red hair on the left from 1917, and then the uh, cafe singer on the right from 1917. As I said, you know, you, you walk into the room, and obviously we're looking at all portraits, uh, with the exception of the, of the head. Um, and so portraiture becomes, especially as his health deteriorates, portraiture becomes the, um, the main avenue for expression. He paints everybody and anybody models friends, acquaintances, always with this beautiful kind of elegance, this beautiful line. And yet there is an evocative quality often to the faces, a deeper sense of personality, even when the eyes are blank or just small little dots. He walks a very fine line between abstraction and naturalism, or at least abstraction and the inability still to stay within the world of, of things that are recognizable to us, much like Picasso in that regard. Here's his closest buddy, uh, Soutine. So this is our portrait of Heim Soutine from 1917, and a portrait and a photograph of Soutine on the right <clears throat> in his studio with holding, of course, a, a dead animal. Uh, that's a dead turkey um, from 1927. This relationship was incredibly close. Soutine is definitely Modigliani's closest friend. He comes from uh, Russia, from Lithuania, Vilna. He, he has various stops along the way. Modigliani's 10 years older than Soutine. Soutine doesn't speak French. By this time, Modigliani was fluent in French. So he begins to teach him how to speak French. He sees him, as, a, as I said, as a younger brother. He paints him on more than one occasion. He, whenever he has any extra money, and Modigliani doesn't usually have a lot of extra money, he gives it to Satine, uh, food, etc. I mean, he really is like a brother-father to this to this younger artist. So here we have um, again, kind of stylized. His portraits are either stylized or they tend to be. Uh, a little bit impersonal, and then there are those that have a sense of sort of inner inner characterization. Um, but I think this portrait is particularly lovely because I think it does sort of speak to the special relationship that the two men have. 
the sort of half-closed eyes, this one slightly higher, just very slightly higher than the other, which comes again from a lot of African art. Uh, his hair is kind of tumbled up. He sits with his hands crossed. Um, he almost looks a little awkward. Satine was not a good, um, <clears throat> what should we say, promoter. He wasn't very <clears throat> outgoing for all kinds of reasons. He didn't know French and other things. So Modigliani kind of captures that. When, <clears throat> I think I said this, told this to you last time, uh, but if you weren't here, when Modigliani was on his deathbed and uh, he knew he was going to die shortly and his dealer was there, <clears throat> Modigliani turned to his dealer and said, don't worry, I'm leaving you Satine. Uh, so it was, he, this was the guy he was bequeathing now to his dealer. Here is the portrait of Leon Bosques, who was the great designer, costume designer, scene painter for the Ballet Russe for Sergei Diaghilev. That's a photograph of Box on the right from 1916. The, the painting is from 1917. All of these artists, Picasso, Brock, Modigliani, Matisse, uh, they were all Lipschitz. They were all involved and enthralled with the Ballet Russe by Sergei Diaghilev. So many of them were employed as set designers, costume designers. Um, that's a very well, thoroughly studied topic. We did the beautiful show here uh, several years ago that sort of brought that to the attention. Uh, among the designers, costume designers and set designers, Baxa was one of the, the most important. So some of the most famous ballets that you know from the Ballet Russe, he did the sets for Cleopatra, sets and costumes for Cleopatra in 1909, Scheherazade in 1910, Carnival in 1910, Narcisse in 1911, Spectre of the Rose in 1911, La Primidie du Fond, the prelude to the afternoon or the afternoon of the Fond, 1912, and Daphnis and Chloe, 1912. These are among Diaghilev's greatest ballets, all designed by this individual in terms of the costumes and sets. He's another. Modigliani certainly was empathetic and supportive of fellow Jews who had come and were now kind of on their own. And Box had lived in Western Europe because as a Jew, he, he did not have the permission to live permanently in this area in Russia uh, outside, it was called the Pale of Settlement, outside of where the Jews were allowed to live. He didn't have permission to do that. That allowed you permanent residency in this area of Russia for Jews. And so he stayed essentially in Western Europe to avoid dealing with that. It's a great, uh, this mustache is great, yeah, the way he captures that little. They're thinly painted, notice here. I mean, you just see, he just lets it go and you see the canvas down here. So among the great costumes by uh, Box, where none were more famous than his costume here for Nijinsky. This is Václav Nijinsky, who, who originated the, the performance or the role of the fawn in the prelude to the afternoon of the fawn. I see, keep saying prelude because that's Debussy. Debussy did the music. But it's afternoon of the fawn. He does the fawn. This costume is designed by Box here. And this is one of his costume designs. It's a watercolor tempera and watercolor. Well, it's got everything. Graphite tempera, watercolor, gold paint on illustration board. You've seen these. These become popular calendars today. Um, this original drawing is in Hartford. It's at the Wattsworth Athenaeum. 
and then this is Nijinsky at the premiere of the Fawn uh, in Paris in May of 1912. Two more ladies. Um, sometimes we don't know exactly who these people are. Sometimes they're models. Sometimes they're clearly not models, but they may have various and sundry other um, connections to um, to Modigliani. So this is Madame Amedi here on the left, sometimes called a woman with a cigarette, and girl in a green blouse, uh, 1917 on the right. You can very often match up settings uh, where he's placing his figures in the same positions or the same kind of wall like we had here. Uh, this kind of setting, of course, creates a much more Cezanne-esque kind of complexity of space against flatness. And now we come to the, to the nudes, uh, which are among his most renowned, and during their lifetime, among his most scandalous works. So these are the two that Chester Dale purchased. Uh, Nude on a Blue Cushion from 1917 on the left, and Nude on a Divan, on the right from 1918. Um, many stories around, around the exhibition of the nudes. He became renowned for these languorous nudes. He did 22 uh, reclining nudes, this position, and then another 13 images of nudes seated. So 22 reclining nudes and 13 seated nudes. And he did all of these between 1916 and 1919. So that was a period of intense activity with this subject. He exhibited um, at a gallery in Paris in 1918, and this was the um, exhibition that had to be closed down by the police for obscenity, and mainly it was about uh, pubic hair <clears throat> or hair under the arm. <clears throat> that was just too much. That was, that was one bridge too far <clears throat> for, the, uh, for the public. So all the paintings had to be removed, and the show had to be closed down because of that. Which is interesting, because um, let's look at some of his predecessors. <laughs> Certainly, he's aware of Titian and the Venetians, Giorgione, and here, of course, the great modern nude by Edouard Manet. So on the left is the, the Venus of Urbino by Titian from 1534, and on the right is the Olympia from 1856, um, I'm leaving out <clears throat> Velazquez, Goya, Ang, uh, a whole host of other art, Delacroix, who painted the reclining female nude that uh, certainly were paintings that Modigliani was aware of. Uh, and here, what's interesting is this, th without getting a long discourse on pubic hair, but uh, uh, what's interesting here is how blatant that section of the body is revealed here and how discreet it is here. But of course, Manet is the smart guy. He, he doesn't want, this is gonna cause enough trouble as it is. So what he does is the way he, this hand is delicately and flatly across the body. Of course, what Manet has the Olympia doing is shoving her hand deeply and it comes out of the painting as one of the three-dimensional areas. So in fact, he's calling attention to that. Uh, he's just doing it in a different, he's doing it in a different, more subtle way. Uh, but he is calling attention to that part of the body. So this idea of Modigliani's nudes as sensual, as sexual, as modern, 
as um, historical or traditional. His, his nudes open up a discussion on that topic that's pretty far-ranging. Um, he's certainly not just sort of echoing a bucolic tradition of Titian or Giorgione, the pastoral tradition. He's modern, uh, more like Manet, and yet there still is in Modigliani a kind of languid quality that isn't very often so, uh, seen in, um, in Manet. Now, recently, in the past three, four years, um, some paintings of Modigliani's nudes have come up for sale, these two. Um, <clears throat> so this is reclining, on the left, is reclining nude. Uh, 1917 to 18, it was in a private collection until 20, well, it's still in a private collection, but now a different private collection um, in 2015. And then the reclining nude on the right <clears throat> from 1917. One of the things about these paintings that strikes you is, especially the size, they're big. Um, so that's important. The one on the right is a pretty big, is a pretty big painting. This head turned over the shoulder, which has, a again, a kind of come-hither kind of um, look to it. It's alluring. It has a certain seductive pose. All of that is relevant here. Um, he gives you, this is one of the few nudes where he gives you the entire body. He usually crops the figures. Um, but when he crops the figures, it gives you a sort of closer uh, sort of view. Um, these, these paintings are considered a kind of uh, watershed in the history of the portrayal of the female nude because they seem to speak and synthesize and collate so many ideas about the, the realm of the nude figure in the history of Western painting. Uh, again, in their day, they were certainly controversial. Today, they are the most, most sought after works by Modigliani. So, for example, uh, this is the one that came up for auction. Um, <clears throat> this one came up for auction at um, Sotheby's in New York in, um, um, when was that? May of 2018. And what did we say the other thing sold for? 56? The head was 56 million, right? This sold for $157 million, this painting. And what, what you see here is the painting, when it, the, before they sold it at Sotheby's, before they put it on the block, what you like to do is to, to send the painting on a tour to drum up business, potential buyers. And the one market you're going to send it to is Asia. And this is where it was at Hong Kong, Sotheby's in Hong Kong, uh, here, so people could see it <clears throat> uh, here. So that was $157 million in May of 2018, but that was a decline in the Modigliani market because the painting on the left, the painting on the left had sold three years earlier, 2015, at Christie's in New York, and that's the one that broke the record for Modigliani. It sold for 170 million. So there was actually a drop of $20 million <laughs> from 2015 to 2018. Um, <clears throat> this painting was, was purchased by a very, very, he's a billionaire, I don't know, 10 times over, a uh, Chinese billionaire who actually started off as a taxi driver. And then he's, he's now a billionaire art collector. So he purchased this. 
So Modigliani's art, uh, life in art is short, it's, in, it's intensive, and then it, it's over. Um, and it ends in a way that is, of course, the stuff of movies and torrid romances and books and things. Um, this is the last known photograph of Modigliani in the middle from 1919. And this is Jean, uh, his uh, common-law wife. This is a photograph when she was 19 in 1917. And then the one and only self-portrait that Modigliani painted, um, which is interesting because he took off his beard. Uh, self-portrait on the right is 1919, same year as the photograph on the left in the center but he cleans himself up a bit. Um, this is in the Museum of Art at Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, today. So Modigli Modigliani's life is, is filled with um, poverty, but especially illness, and illness from a very early sort of age, somewhat similar in some ways to Edvard, Edvard Munch's growing up. Um, <clears throat> one of his aunts on his mother's side <clears throat> committed suicide on his, yes, his mother's side, committed suicide when he was young. Another one was confined to a mental institution. And then when he was 16 years old, he, he contracted pleurisy and then also typhoid fever. So this affected his health from then on. And the same year that he was diagnosed with pleurisy and typhoid fever, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Uh, and it's ultimately tuberculosis in the form of meningitis that would kill um, um, Modigliani. Certainly, the, the, the story of Modigliani gets exaggerated around the theme of chronic drug and alcohol abuse. And certainly, he, he did abuse alcohol and, and drugs, um, probably hashish. And he was probably taking opiates for the pain of the tuberculosis. So there are legends about Modigliani and his behavior, his comportment. Uh, he would uh, get drunk and then take off all his clothes in a cafe so he didn't have to pay the bill because uh, they would kick him out. Um, um, he, I mean, there, and many, many, many of these stories are absolutely true because we have all these eyewitness accounts. Some stuff isn't true. Um, in any way, he dies in a Paris hospital in 1920 um, from tubercular meningitis at the age of 35. Now, Jean here is, and this was a very intense uh, love relationship. Uh, she was, again, model, muse, common-law wife. She's with him right up to the end when he dies in 1917. Um, she came from a very devout Catholic family. And uh, in order to be with Modigliani, they were not, her family was, did not approve of Modigliani. So she had to renounce her family in order to be with Modigliani. She bore him a child, of course, Jean, uh, same name, um, in 1918. And then when Modigliani died in 1919, well, he died in 1920, but um, 1920, she was already eight months pregnant with another child. Um, their second child. Um, Modigliani dies on January 24th, 1920. And um, two days later, Jean jumped out the window of her parents' apartment and killed herself and her fetus. And she was 21 years old. Initially, her family would not allow her to be buried with Modigliani. She was buried separately. 
But through, over the years, the protestations of, of Modigliani's mother, actually, who outlived her son, um, they advocated that she should, her remains should be moved to be with Modigliani. So today they are at the Père Lachaise um, Cemetery, probably in the, in the realm of popular grave sites, <laughs> uh, maybe just below Jim Morrison uh, uh, of the doors. Uh, um. Now, she has a child. What about her? Well, a Jean, well, let's call her Jean Modigliani, <laughs> just for the ease of it. Uh, here she is, um, and uh, grown up here in a she's standing, interestingly enough, here and here, seated, in front of a reproduction of a self-portrait painted by her mother. So Jeanne was also an artist, a drafts, draftswoman. I mean, she was a very talented artist. She didn't produce like Modigliani. It's another case of a woman whose talent is sort of ends up being subservient to her husband. But th these are reproductions. These aren't the paintings. But um, most of these were in her collection, uh, works by her mother. So this was a self-portrait of her mother, Jeanne, that she stands in front of here. And um, the self-portrait was 1919. The photographs are 1964. And they are part of an interesting article that was written in 1964 for Life magazine that brought together because, in fact, they were, had become friends and were both having exhibitions at that time. The daughter of Georges Rualt, remember we talked about Rualt last time, and the daughter of Modigliani. So Isabel Rualt and Jean Modigliani became friends. Um, in 1964, they were both having exhibitions. And Life magazine went and did a feature story on both ladies. And these photographs here are from that spread. So Jeanne uh, was raised after her father's death she was, and her mother's suicide. She was raised um, by Modigliani's mother and a, an aunt on that side of the family. And then she went off to the University of, eventually she went off to the University of Florence. She majored in art history. Uh, she became an art historian. In 1958, she wrote a book about her father called Modigliani, The Man and the Myth. She married two times, uh, both times to uh, political leftists. She, she was very much sort of on the left politically. And in fact, she participated, we know, in the French resistance with one of her, her first husband. She became a painter, not like her father, though. She was an abstract painter, almost totally abstract. She was the executor of his estate, <clears throat> which was problematic because she had to authenticate a number of works by Bondigliani as the executor. And that became a problem about whether these works were really Modigliani or not. And today, one of the most problematic art markets is Modigliani. There are at least, last reckoning, probably a 1,000 fakes still out there. Um, so whenever you see one, a Modigliani for sale somewhere, um, one has to be very skeptical. And only not too long ago was a catalog raisonné put together, but there still are a lot of fake Modiglianis circulating throughout the world. Um, after uh, Stalin, uh, the rise of Stalin, um, Jean got disillusioned with the left, disillusioned with communism, and she began to drink heavily, part in part because of the legacy, I guess, the genetic legacy of her father. And in essence, she drank herself to death uh, in 1984, 100 years 
uh, after her father's birth. Her father was born in 1884, and she died in 1984. Here is uh, Isabel Ruault with, in front of one of her father's portraits of a clown. Remember, Ruault is an original member of the Foes. We mentioned him last week. And here is um, Jean with a photograph of her father um, uh, on the wall. So this was part of the spread for the Life magazine article in 1964. So in some ways, uh, here at the National Gallery, we're sort of at the epicenter of Modigliani simply because we have still today, I think, the best collection of Modigliani uh, probably anywhere, even outside of Italy uh, or even inside Italy. Uh, when we, I mentioned Soutine last time, it's interesting because these two artists always kind of go together. And probably the best collection of Soutine is at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. At one point, he had 55 paintings. And then he widowed, uh, winnowed it down to 21 that are in the collection now. We have 13 Modigliani's. So those two artists are within a short distance of each other today, Modigliani and Soutine, Philadelphia, DC, which is a great, um, a great thing for us and for the, the East Building. And that renovation of the East Building is what allowed us finally, because of the additional floor space, to bring them all out of storage. In the past, we might have had one or two of those out, but now you have the whole sort of work, uh, the whole body of work, which is wonderful to see together. <laughs> this has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.